Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 196, Noah Worcester on Atonement, Part 1. In this and the next episode of the Trinity's podcast, I'm going to present some selections from a book entitled The Atoning Sacrifice, A Display of Love, Not of Wrath, by the interesting early American thinker Noah Worcester. Noah Worcester was born in 1758 in Hollis, New Hampshire. He received little formal education, and at the age of 16, he was a fifer with the American Revolutionary Forces at the famous Battle of Bunker Hill. He barely escaped with his life and went on to see other action in the war with his New Hampshire militiamen. Based on this experience, he eventually became a pacifist and wrote a book entitled A Solemn Review of the Custom of War, which was published in 1814 under the pen name of Philo Pacificus. He went on eventually to found and edit a publication called Friend of Peace, which was an early pacifist periodical that ran for some nine years. But back to his earlier life, in 1778 he married and settled in Thornton, New Hampshire, where he was a schoolmaster and a shoemaker. He pastored the Thornton Congregational Church from 1787 till 1810, and simultaneously served in many other capacities around town, including state legislator and justice of the peace. In 1710, Worcester moved to Salisbury, New Hampshire, to help his ailing brother, the Reverend Thomas Worcester. That year, Noah Worcester published the first edition of his book entitled Bible News, or Sacred Truths Relating to the Living God, His Only Son, and Holy Spirit. This was a biblical investigation of the Trinity, based on decades of mulling over Scripture and trying to come to a settled view of his own. The book Bible News eventually went through five editions, the last of which was in 1854. In it, he comes to a Unitarian conclusion that the one true God is the Father, although he's the kind of Unitarian who believes that Jesus pre-existed and indeed is the one through whom God created the cosmos. Jesus, in his view, isn't created, but somehow derives from God. Some people would describe this as an Arian-type view, although I think subordinationist Unitarian would be a better label. At this time, Congregationalists in New England were split. Some were Trinitarian and some were various kinds of Unitarian. And unfortunately for him, he was considered an apostate and had to do something other than preaching. He was invited by some leading Unitarian clergymen to edit a new periodical entitled The Christian Disciple. So he moved to Brighton, Massachusetts and edited that publication from 1813 till 1818. And then he ended up publishing those pacifist things that I mentioned before. This book, called The Atoning Sacrifice, A Display of Love, Not of Wrath, was first published in 1829, with this second edition being published in 1830. In this book, by carefully picking through the New Testament scriptures, Worcester is trying to work his way out of a Calvinist-type understanding of atonement. Although his theory is not as developed as you might want in some respects, I think this is a lost classic that has some interesting things to say about atonement and what the New Testament does and doesn't say on the subject. In part of his introduction, Worcester says this, The more I examined, the more I became convinced that the atoning sacrifice was intimately connected with the Christian principles of peace, which had then for a long time occupied my attention and that it was, in the strictest sense of the words, a pacific measure, a reconciling sacrifice, made from love to enemies, and on the gospel principle of overcoming evil with good. It has been with me a principal object in writing to evince that in this sacrifice there was a display of love, not of wrath. If on this point I have failed, I have labored in vain. But if in this particular I have been successful, I cannot but indulge a hope that what I have written will be an occasion of relief and comfort to many reflecting Christians. For many, I am persuaded, like myself, 
have been perplexed with the awful idea that the sufferings of the Son of God were occasioned by displays of God's anger or avenging justice against Him as our substitute, and that this was the only way in which divine benevolence could be exercised in the pardon of penitent sinners. In the rest of this podcast, then, I'm going to skip through the book and present what I think are some of the more important bits of it. I won't go through all of his exegesis or his respectful discussions of opposing theories, but I'll try my best to get at the heart of what he's saying and what his interpretation of the atoning death of Jesus is. Chapter 1. An Appeal to the Benevolent Heart In the Gospel, God is revealed to us as our Father. The relation of father and son is well known to men of every land, and it was doubtless for the purpose of exciting in our minds reverence and filial affectation that the gospel was sent to us as a message of love from a kind father to disobedient children. For a similar purpose, the Messiah taught his disciples thus to address their prayers to God, Our Father who art in heaven, to cause the truth to sink deep into the minds of his hearers, respecting the fatherly concern of God for his children and his readiness to hear and answer their requests, our Savior thus reasoned, If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, How much more shall your Father who is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? To represent the tender feelings of God towards the disobedient, his readiness to pardon the penitent, and his joy on seeing any one of them return from his evil ways, our Lord uttered the parable of the prodigal son. Here I may ask, what benevolent parent ever attentively read or heard this parable without being touched and melted? by the compassion and tender solicitude of the father of this prodigal, his readiness to go out to meet the returning son while he was yet a great way off, the affection with which he received and embraced the penitent child, his disposition to overlook all his past disobedience and profligacy, and the various forms in which the father expressed his joy and his forgiving love on beholding evidence of contrition in his long-lost son, What a privilege do we possess in having such a Father for our God! We see, then, that our divine instructor made use of the known feelings of an earthly parent towards his children to represent to us the greater love of our Heavenly Father towards us all. May I not, then, be justified in appealing to the hearts of benevolent parents to convince them that some of the most prevalent views of the atoning sacrifice are possibly and probably incorrect, dishonorable to God, and injurious to those who possess them? To every Christian who knows by experience the feelings of a tender father, the following appeal is made. Would you not deem it a reproach, should it be currently reported, that you are of such a disposition that if a child has once disobeyed your commands, he can no longer behold in his father a friend? and that you never forgive even a penitent child without first making a terrible display of your anger on an innocent son as a substitute for the guilty? Suppose again that this report originated with your friends, that they circulated it in the belief that such conduct on your part was great evidence of your wisdom and rectitude, and that such a disposition in you was the glory of your character. Would you not, nevertheless, be grieved that such an opinion had acquired belief? Would you not say that your friends had certainly formed mistaken views in regard to your feelings and your conduct towards your children, that although you had known them to transgress and had been much grieved when they had gone astray, yet your loving kindness had never been withdrawn from them and that they could still behold in their father a friend? that you never had done such a thing as to inflict evil on an innocent son as a substitute for the guilty, and that the thought of so doing was enough to fill your mind with horror? I will go one step further. Suppose that of the many friends who had believed the unfavorable report, one, if not more, had become fully convinced not only that the report was a misrepresentation of facts, but really injurious to your reputation, 
Would you not deem it incumbent on him as your friend to endeavor to convince his brethren? And should he plead that he could not do so without exposing himself to suspicion and reproach, that many would be likely to say that while he professes to be your friend, he is at heart your enemy? Would this, in your opinion, be a sufficient excuse? If these questions should receive such answers from your conscience as I think they will, I may proceed with my appeal. Is there no danger that your views of the atonement are incorrect while they impute to God a moral character which you would deem reproachful if imputed to yourself? I say a moral character because God's mode of forgiveness must proceed from his own disposition and not from any extraneous cause or any defect of knowledge or power. The effects which I wish to produce by this appeal are these, a conviction that the question to be discussed is of the most serious nature, a question relating to the moral character of God, and consequently one which demands of the writer and the reader the spirit of candor and impartiality with a sincere desire to know and understand what the Spirit has said to the churches on this important subject. Chapter 2. General Remarks and Explanations The words atone and atonement will frequently occur in this work. As in my younger years I was led into error by misapprehending the meaning of the words, I shall here give an explanation which I think will be admitted by the learned and impartial of all denominations. Atonement, when the word is divided into syllables, its meaning will be evident to every reader, at one meant. Thus, to atone is to make one, or to reconcile parties at variance, and to make atonement is to bring about reconciliation and peace. The word atonement occurs but once in the common version of the New Testament, and in that case it is acknowledged to stand as a substitute for the word reconciliation. There never perhaps was a sacrifice to which the word atonement was more properly applied than that made by the death of the Messiah. But it is proper to observe that Though atonement signifies reconciliation, yet the typical sacrifices to which it was applied were but means of reconciliation, and such is the fact in regard to the gospel sacrifice, the name of the end being applied to the appointed means. But this is a common figure of speech in the Bible. It is on the same principle that Christ is said to be made of God unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Atonement, however, means not merely reconciliation, but purification or cleansing. This was probably its principal meaning when atonements were made for inanimate objects, the tabernacle, the sanctuary, the altar, and the house infected by the leprosy. This meaning was also implied in the annual atonements made for the people of Israel, as will be shown in the chapter on the Mosaic atonements. But this last meaning is not at all repugnant to the other. For moral impurity is what separates the sinner from God. Let him be cleansed, and he is reconciled, at one with God. As I shall have occasion to speak of substituted sufferings, I wish it to be understood that I freely admit that the Messiah actually suffered for sinners, and for the purpose of saving them from sin and suffering. But I do not admit that the sufferings of Christ were the effects of divine anger or avenging justice against him as our substitute. Nor do I admit that his sufferings were designed to appease the anger of God towards sinners or to effect any change of feeling in the divine mind. I view them as means for effecting a change in us, not in God. Let it be fully admitted that the advocates for substituted sufferings both believe and teach that the atoning sacrifice originated in the love of God. Still, they also teach that the atonement itself consisted in such displays of divine anger or justice inflicted on the Son of God as were a proper substitute and equivalent for the everlasting miseries due the innumerable millions of mankind. 
On the other hand, the theory of atonement, which I think is taught in the Bible, implies no expression of God's anger or of punitive justice in the sufferings of his son. Should a king, from real benevolence to revolted subjects, knowingly expose an only son to sufferings and to death by sending him among them on what he deems a necessary errand of mercy to reclaim the rebels and save them from ruin, we should not hesitate to say that the king has displayed extraordinary love to his subjects in not sparing his own son but delivering him up to suffering and death for the benefit of men who had become his enemies. In speaking on the subject, we should be ready to say emphatically, Herein is love, or Behold what manner of love. It is, in a sense analogous to this, that I think God has commended his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, as on the one hypothesis, the atonement was made by an awful display of avenging justice, and on the other, by an extraordinary display of saving love, I think there can be no grounds to object to the distinction intimated in the title of the work. As men have long been in the habit of regarding punishment as the effect of divine anger, as the language of the Bible favors the idea, and as the advocates for substituted sufferings have abundantly used such phrases as the wrath of God and the anger of God in reference to the atonement, I have used similar phrases in reference to their views. But I have not done this from a belief that there is anything in God corresponding to the vindictive passion of anger in men. Yet so far, and in the same sense as divine wrath is manifested in punishment, it must be manifested in a substitute for punishment which is made by displays of punitive justice. With real pleasure, however, I have observed that many modern writers in favor of substituted sufferings have avoided the use of such harsh language and revolting representations as were common at a former period in describing the manner in which God treated his son while on the cross. I hope this change is an indication of something more important than a mere advance in literary taste. I am inclined to impute it to the progress of light and a growing conviction that there is something in the doctrine of substituted penal sufferings too shocking to be expressed in bold, emphatic language. Chapter 6 Sacrifices not substitutes for punishment. The word sacrifice, as used in the Bible, most commonly means an offering to the Lord. Cain and Abel brought each of them an offering to the Lord, but by faith Abel offered unto God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. By the Mosaic laws, a multitude of sacrifices were instituted as symbolic acts of worship, confession of sin, supplication for pardon, and other favors, or thanksgiving for mercies received. When the offering was made with hearts corresponding to the purpose of the symbols, they were acceptable to God and means of procuring divine favor. But like all other external forms of worship, their acceptableness to God depended on the temper of the worshipers. It is also to be observed that those exercises of heart which the symbols were designed to excite or call forth are also denominated sacrifices, whether accompanied by the symbols or not. Hence David, in confessing his aggravated sins, said to God, Thou desirest not sacrifice, else I would give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite spirit, O God, thou wilt not despise. Paul exhorted the Christians at Rome to present their bodies a living sacrifice unto God. To the Hebrews it is said, By him let us offer the sacrifice of our praise to God continually, that is, the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. By the conversation between Christ and a discreet scribe, it appears that they agreed in the opinion that to love God with all the heart and our neighbor as ourselves is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Not only was Christ our Passover sacrificed for us, but Paul spoke of offering himself, or being offered. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. To Timothy he thus wrote, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. 
He exhorted the Ephesians to imitate the love of both God and His Son. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given Himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. From this passage we may very safely infer that it was the love of Christ in laying down His life for us that rendered the sacrifice so acceptable to God. From the passages already quoted, I think it is evident that the Mosaic sacrifices were not substitutes for punishment, but acts of worship, and that under the Gospel dispensation, those affections of heart which rendered symbolic acts of worship acceptable to God are now accounted acceptable sacrifices without the Mosaic symbols. Sacrifices were not substitutes for punishment. They were of less importance than a humble, merciful, and obedient heart. These ideas are clearly contained in Samuel's reproof of Saul and in every other passage which will be quoted. Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. To do justice and judgment is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifices. An obedient heart is what God requires in all external acts of worship. Without this, no service can be acceptable to Him. But where this is found, it is acceptable, whether expressed by external symbols or not. In the days of Isaiah, the people of Israel abounded in sacrifices and offerings, yet God abhorred these sacrifices and commanded them to bring no more vain oblations. As a reason for this, He said to them, your hands are full of blood. It appears that they relied on their sacrifices to secure them from God's anger while they indulged themselves in works of violence and bloodshed. But God's threatenings to them at that point fully evinced that He did not regard the multitude of their sacrifices as a substitute for punishment. As death was the penalty threatened to Adam for disobedience, and as divine mercy suspended the execution of the threatening, is it not probable that God instituted the sacrifice of animals not merely as typical of the gospel sacrifice, but as symbolical means to keep alive in the minds of men that their forfeited lives were preserved by divine mercy, to give them a space for repentance, and that it was their duty to confess and forsake their sins? The death of the animal offered in sacrifice was adapted to impress the mind of the offerer with the fact that his own life was forfeited by sin and that it was his duty to repent, but that the death of the victim was not a substitute for the death of him who presented it is evident from the fact that he was still liable to die. It was to him rather an admonitory symbol than a substitute for his own death. Chapter 7. Opinions and Concessions of Theological Professors Professor Stewart has expressed the following opinions. God is just, therefore he will punish sin. And if we read only the book of nature, must we not say too with Seneca, therefore he cannot forgive it? But Revelation discloses his attribute of mercy and mercy consists essentially in remitting the strict claims of justice, either in whole or in part. In the agonies of Christ, a personage of such transcendent dignity and glory, we see the terrors of divine justice displayed in the most affecting manner, and are impressively taught what evil is due to sin. In the pardon purchased by his death, we contemplate the riches of divine mercy. 
I shall not remark upon the account here given of the book of nature, except so far as to express my belief that a due consideration of the long-suffering of God and his innumerable favors to sinners might naturally excite a hope that with him there is forgiveness for the penitent, and that this hope might derive some strength from observing how far vice is connected with misery and reformation with happiness in the course of natural providence. But I may seriously ask, who can see riches of divine mercy in pardon conferred on the penitent only on the ground that it was purchased by the sufferings of an innocent substitute? If such representations were just, would they not evince rather the poverty than the riches of divine mercy? The professor admits that mercy consists essentially in remitting the claims of strict justice in whole or in part. Hence, the mercy displayed in pardon must be in proportion as the claims of strict justice are remitted. I may then ask, how much is there of mercy in a pardon purchased by a substitute who suffers an equivalent to all the demands of the law? In respect to the sinner, the whole of the claims of justice may be remitted, but this does not decide the question as to the degree of mercy displayed by the sovereign. For all that is remitted to the sinner is supposed to have been required of the substitute and suffered by him. But what are the claims of strict justice? Does strict justice claim a right to inflict penal evils on the innocent as a substitute for the punishment due the guilty? If not, how can the claims of justice be answered by such infliction either in whole or in part? It will be said that the Son of God consented to suffer as our substitute. But where is the record of such a consent? I know not. Supposing, however, that it could be found, would such a consent make it right to inflict the evil on him? Could a father thus derive a right to punish the innocent instead of the guilty son? Or could a king thus derive a right to punish an innocent subject? The answers to these questions must be in the negative. It is an object in every just penal law to distinguish the innocent from the transgressor by exposing the latter only to be punished. When just and necessary sufferings are inflicted on the transgressor, these sufferings may be said to answer the demands of the law or the claims of justice, but as neither the law nor justice has any such demands on the innocent, I cannot see how the claims of strict justice can be answered in whole or in part by the penal sufferings of an innocent substitute. Chapter 9. Vicarious Punishment Not a Display of Justice it appears to me that vicarious punishment is itself incompatible with a display of justice in any circumstances, except when it happens to be inflicted by mistake. An upright but fallible judge may be so misinformed and deceived as to inflict deserved punishment on the wrong person, and thus punish the innocent instead of the guilty. In such a case, there may have been a display of intended justice, for it was not the innocent but the guilty that the judge meant to punish. But what would be thought of a judge in our land who should intentionally cause an innocent person to be executed as a substitute for a felon? Would it not excite a general sentiment of horror throughout the country? Who does not see a display of injustice on the part of Pilate in passing the sentence of crucifixion on Jesus after he had frankly owned that he found nothing in him worthy of death and no fault at all? Suppose that Pilate had been arraigned by the emperor to answer for his conduct in condemning one that he viewed as innocent, and that in excuse Pilate had pleaded that he caused Jesus to be crucified as a substitute for Barabbas were for a hundred malefactors who had been released on that ground. Should we see any approach to justice? Suppose again that Pilate could have said truly that Jesus consented to suffer as a substitute for the guilty. Could the conduct of Pilate be justified on such a ground? If not, how can we see a display of justice on the part of God if he laid on his son the punishment due us all? Punishment is an evil which none but the guilty can deserve. To perceive justice in the infliction of a capital punishment 
we must perceive desert of the punishment in the sufferer. When no desert of punishment is perceived, how is it possible to perceive a display of justice in penal sufferings? In what way can a king or a judge more flagrantly pervert judgment than by intentionally punishing the innocent that the guilty may escape or be acquitted? Yet it is to men that it has been supposed God made an exhibition of his justice in the sufferings of his son? But how is that possible when the very faculties with which God has endowed men lead them to regard such conduct as a perversion of justice if done by a human magistrate? Had I proposed such questions fifty years ago, the clergy of New England would have answered that the sins of the elect were so imputed to Christ that he was legally guilty of all their offenses. From such a port, it might then have seemed pretty straight sailing to vicarious punishment. But as the doctrine of transferred or imputed guilt has been discarded, on what real or even imaginary ground can the justice of vicarious suffering now be vindicated? If in the view of enlightened men such a procedure is always unjust when adopted by men, can it be to them a display of justice when done by their maker? Chapter 10. The Ransom Paid for Sinners As the word ransom in its primary sense meant the price paid for the redemption of a slave, and as it is said that Christ came to give his life as a ransom for many, it has been inferred with wonderful confidence that his sufferings were a substitute or equivalent for the miseries due the wicked. I have no occasion to deny that the word originally meant what has been asserted, but as a ransom primarily meant the price given for the freedom of a slave, any means by which liberty was procured would soon be called a ransom. Then, as a further variation from the original meaning, the word would be applied to any means by which deliverance was effected from any species of thraldom, oppression, or calamity. By a little reflection, it may be found that the word is used with all this latitude of meaning in common discourse and modern writings, and also in the Bible. The words ransomed, redeemed, purchased, bought, are of similar import when used in reference to procuring freedom for a slave, and they are all metaphorically used to denote deliverance or the means of deliverance from any evil, whether natural or moral, or the means of procuring any privileges, temporal or spiritual. The Israelites in the Old Testament are called a purchased congregation, the ransomed of the Lord. So in the New Testament, Christians are represented as a purchased inheritance, a purchased or peculiar people, a people whom the Lord purchased with his own blood. When the word ransom is used in its primary sense, it always implies a party to whom the price is paid, as well as a redeemer. Those, therefore, who insist on the primary sense when the word is used in reference to Christ should be prepared to tell us to whom the ransom was paid. Sinners are represented as being in servitude to Satan and also to sin, but it is hoped that no Christian of this age will pretend that it was to either of these that Christ paid a ransom for sinners. Will it then help the matter to say that the ransom was paid to God? not unless we are prepared to impute to God the character of the slaveholder by whom sinners had been kept in bondage. There was a time when eminent ministers of the church maintained that the ransom was paid to the devil, but afterwards the opinion prevailed that it was paid to God. Thus, Justin, Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, Origen, Basil, etc., who maintained that the ransom was paid to the devil, 
Indeed, this was the general opinion in the earlier ages. But Gregory of Nazianzus, Augustine, Athanasius, and Ambrose held that the ransom was paid to God, a sentiment which was generally held by the schoolmen. Each of these hypotheses appears to me absurd, if nothing worse, and both may be avoided by only supposing that the apostles used such language in its common and figurative sense to express the means by which men have been delivered from existing or impending evils, or by which they obtained important privileges. The Israelites were once in bondage to Pharaoh and were ransomed by Jehovah. Now what ransom did God give for the redemption of this multitude of slaves? At what price were they purchased or bought? The fact is, God gave Pharaoh and many of his people as a ransom for the Israelites. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, said God to his chosen people, in Isaiah 43, 6. In this sense of the word, any means by which deliverance from evil is effected may be called a ransom. By great sufferings brought on Egypt, God ransomed Israel from slavery. In these sufferings, there was indeed a display of divine displeasure, but they were not a substitute for the punishment due to the Israelites. Hence the word, as used in reference to our Lord, affords no proof that his sufferings were a substitute for the punishment due to those whose benefit he laid down his life. It proves no more than that the sufferings of Christ were, by God, made a means for our redemption. Solomon says, Proverbs 21.18, The wicked shall be a ransom for the righteous. Did he mean that the sufferings of the wicked were to be a substitute for such sufferings as God might justly inflict on his penitent children? This will hardly be pretended. It may be true that the word ransom originally meant what may be called a substitute for the service of a slave. But neither the service nor the substitute was of the nature of punishment or penal suffering. May I not then say that there is no sense of the word ransom which can justify the hypothesis that the sufferings of Christ were a substitute for punishment? In this, as well as several other cases, I think it will have been found that a meaning has been given to words when used in relation to Christ, which cannot be justified by the use of the same words in any other case in which they occur in the Bible. Chapter 11. Thoughts on Romans 3, 24, 25, and 26. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. This passage, more than any other, has been relied on as teaching the doctrine that the righteousness or justice of God stood in the way of pardoning the penitent sinner and would have rendered forgiveness impossible had not the Son of God consented to endure for mankind the desert of their iniquities. Perhaps, however, the meaning of the passage has been misunderstood and the words may be found capable of a meaning not less important and more to the honor of the divine character. This portion of Scripture has long appeared to me to represent that in the death of Christ something was done, some manifestation made, that God might be just in extending pardon to mankind. Such I still believe to have been the fact, but in a different form from what has generally been supposed. Having reflected more on this passage than on any other in the Bible, I shall hazard some thoughts which may possibly lead to a correct interpretation of the Apostle's words. The righteousness of God, when considered as an attribute, is not at variance with mercy, but one which ensures that God will always do right in dispensing his favors. Or if by righteousness or justice we mean a rule by which God regulates his own conduct, this rule may be said to require of him such displays of benevolence as are adapted to reconcile sinners to himself and to forbid whatever would be of the nature of approving sin. But in no part of the Bible have I found that the justice of God ever stood in the way of pardoning the penitent. Under the Old Testament, God revealed himself as gracious and merciful, 
long-suffering and ever ready to pardon all who would forsake sin and turn to him with contrite hearts. Yet I believe that the justice of God ever did and ever will stand in the way of pardoning the impenitent, for this would be of the nature of approving a sinful character. John says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This text clearly teaches that faithfulness and justice, as well as mercy, are displayed in the pardon of sin. To effect, then, the reconciliation and cleansing of the sinner was the one thing needful to be done, that God might be just in justifying them. And this was the great purpose for which the Messiah was sent into the world, the purpose for which he was set forth as a mercy seat, the purpose of his ministry and example, his life and his death, When it shall have been considered how clearly Christ's suffering for us is represented as an expression not merely of his love, but of the love of God to mankind, it must appear remarkable that it ever became a popular doctrine that the wrath of God was displayed in that event against his Son as our substitute, especially so when it shall also have been considered how very few are the passages of Scripture which even seem to suggest that idea and what a multitude of passages may be brought which clearly teach a contrary doctrine. But perhaps my own experience may aid in accounting for such a phenomenon. In regard to the passage under consideration, I suspect the incorrect meaning which has long been given to the words atonement and propitiation has much influence in misleading the minds of men. I am confident it was so with myself. I was educated in the belief that Christ suffered for us the wrath of God, and that it was thus that he made atonement or propitiation for our sins. Hence, when I saw either of those words, it suggested the idea of avenging justice, as readily as the word murder suggested the idea of violently taking human life. But nothing, as I now conceive, can be farther from the true meaning of atonement or propitiation than avenging justice or vicarious punishment. The two words are of similar import, To propitiate is to reconcile or to make overtures of peace. Hence, propitiation is a reconciling sacrifice. Propitiatory is something adapted to reconcile or intended for that purpose, something on which, from which, in which, by which, or through which overtures of peace are made. Hence, the apostle represents Christ as set forth as a propitiatory or mercy seat in, from, or through which God might manifest his righteous and merciful disposition towards men by doing what love could do to reconcile sinners to himself and to cleanse them from their sins. If we read the passage under review with such a meaning to the word propitiatory or propitiation, how little is seen in it of avenging justice. Indeed, what do we behold in it but unmingled displays of reconciling and forgiving love? The preceding paragraphs of this chapter have been written without calling into question the correctness of the common belief in regard to the meaning of the phrase, His righteousness, meaning the righteousness of God, which twice occurs in the controverted passage. My aim has been to show that, even admitting the phrase to mean the attribute of righteousness in the divine character, the text does not teach that the righteousness of God stood in the way of pardoning the penitent, so as to render vicarious suffering necessary to salvation. The subject will be further discussed in the next chapter, and a further attempt will be made to show that the meaning of the passage has been greatly misapprehended. The import of the passage, which was the subject of inquiry in the preceding chapter, depends much on the meaning of the word that has been variously translated propitiation, propitiatory, and mercy seat, and the meaning of the phrase the righteousness of God as used by the apostle. As the word variously translated is the same which in the Old Testament is rendered mercy seat, there can be no doubt that it was the Mosaic mercy seat to which Paul alluded in representing Christ as having been set forth by God as a propitiatory or mercy seat. We have to inquire, what was the use of the ancient mercy seat? 
After God had directed Moses how to form the mercy seat, he proceeded to say, Thou shalt put the mercy seat above the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And there I will meet with thee and commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims, which are upon the ark of the testimony, of all things which I shall give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. Exodus chapter 25, 21 and 22. This passage represents the mercy seat as a place of God's special presence, the seat of merciful manifestations, the medium of communication between a holy God and a guilty people, from which God gave instructions to Moses for the benefit of the sons of Israel. Another fact deserves notice. The blood of the sin offering was to be sprinkled on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. Directions for this are several times repeated in the 16th chapter of Leviticus. As the sin offering was a symbolical confession of sin, the blood was to be sprinkled on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. By what symbolical acts could a person express in a manner more affecting his reliance on the pardoning mercy of the Lord who instituted and who occupied the mercy seat? Is it not then reasonable to believe that Paul meant to teach Christians that instead of the Mosaic mercy seat, God hath set forth his Son as the gospel mercy seat, consecrated by his blood, and that as the former mercy seat was the medium of communication between God and the Israelites, so is Jesus Christ the medium of communication between God and the world. Through him, God manifests his love to men, reveals the purposes of his mercy, his readiness to pardon, and the conditions of forgiveness and salvation. On the other hand, through Jesus Christ, we have access to the Father of mercies, and as disciples of the crucified Messiah, offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, the sacrifices of broken hearts, confessions of sin, prayers for pardon, and other favors, and such obedience to the precepts of the gospel as is implied by the righteousness which is by faith. Besides the putting away of sin, cleansing or purging from sin, and thus bringing men near to God, was a great purpose of the exhibition of a mercy seat as connected with the sin offering. So this was a special purpose of God's setting forth his Son as the gospel mercy seat, and for which Jesus sacrificed his life. Hence we read that, He hath appeared once in the end of the world to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 9.26 Also, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 1.3 In this last text, what Christ came to effect is spoken of as accomplished, because what he had done and suffered was intended to cleanse us from sin, was adapted to that purpose, and will ultimately have that effect on all who shall obey him. I shall now inquire what is meant by the phrase, the righteousness of God, God's righteousness, his righteousness, as used by Paul. This phrase is ambiguous and may mean the righteousness of God's own character or the righteousness which God requires, as the phrase, the works of God, may mean works which God performs or works which God requires of men. The phrases to be considered, all meaning the righteousness of God, occur eleven times in the New Testament, nine of which are in the writings of Paul, and five of them in the chapter which contains the passage in dispute. In most of these, the meaning seems to be the righteousness which God requires. This meaning is intimated in Romans 3 verse 21 by adding the clause without the law. In verse 22, the meaning is clearly explained, the righteousness of God, which is by faith. No one can reasonably suppose that this explanation is applicable to the attribute of righteousness in God. Yet it was meant to explain what Paul intended by the righteousness of God as he used the phrase. In view of his explanation, verse 22, I shall venture to express what I believe to be the principal ideas intended by him in the 24th, 25th, and 26th verses. My paraphrase is, Being justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God hath set forth as a mercy seat, consecrated by his own blood, to declare the righteousness which God requires for the remission of sins, even the righteousness which is by faith, that he might be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. 
Let it not be imagined that I am disposed to retort the censures of those who have represented a belief in vicarious punishment as essential to the faith of a Christian. Kanda requires me to say that when a reliance on a supposed vicarious sacrifice leads a person to obey the precepts of Christ and to imitate his example, these effects are salutary, acceptable to God, and the righteousness which he requires for the remission of sins, however incorrect may have been his views of the design of the atoning sacrifice. But when reliance on the supposed vicarious suffering renders a person indifferent or negligent in regard to obeying the moral precepts of the gospel, this reliance, in my opinion, is pernicious in its effects and tends to the ruin rather than the salvation of the soul. I may also express my belief that good people who have been in the habit of regarding the atoning sacrifice as a substitute for punishment have been really under a mistake in supposing that they rely solely on such a sacrifice for pardon and acceptance with God, and that, in point of fact, they do habitually and practically regard obedience to the moral precepts of Christ as essential to peace of conscience, to the approbation of God, and to the forgiveness of their sins. But in regard to others who do in fact rely solely on a vicarious sacrifice, and hence esteem personal obedience as of no account in respect to pardon, it is my opinion that the reproof of Samuel to Saul, with little variation, is truly applicable to them. Hath the Lord as great delight in a reliance on vicarious suffering as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than reliance on sacrifice, and to hearken than any faith which worketh not by love. Next week, further excerpts of Noah Worcester's The Atoning Sacrifice, a Display of Love, Not of Wrath. This week's thinking music has been Devil Man by Drake Stafford. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.